Good evening, Sarah Hepler. Good evening, Nancy Rommelman. Well, do you know what day this is when this podcast drops? I do. I think this podcast is going to drop on um, on Valentine's Day. Is that right? Yes. What do you? What did you get me for Valentine's? Nothing, because yes. I'm the husband in this relationship. So perfect. No. Well, <laughs> since I'm the wife, I sent you a you did. a package that is uh, has a packet a gift wrapped for you. That you can open on Valentine's Day, so you never have to feel alone. I uh, it's sitting on my mantle, and people are like, "Who sent you that?" I'm like, "Who else? Only one person is going to send me that." That's Sarah Hepla. So um, it's, it's sitting there. Damn pod partner. Okay. Um, we have a Valentine's Day treat, but before we get to it, I would like to welcome a lot of our new subscribers. We have a bunch of new subscribers. Um, my guess is that they are 80% Sam Harris. That's right. That's right. He just keeps subscribing with like slightly different names, slightly different spellings, just to make us feel good about ourselves, essentially, right? There's no way one man could be that Sam Harris. Like there's got to be a matrix level multiplicity of them. So anyway, we welcome all the Sam Harrises to our podcast and uh, we encourage you to be a paid subscriber if you aren't already, because you're going to want to hear the rest, the entirety of this conversation, because we have a Valentine's Day baby with us in this studio, Dan Savage. Hi. It's well, such a thrill yeah. to be here. I'm a fan <laughs> and a listener. Woo! Dan Savage, what do you think of Valentine's Day? I mean, I don't celebrate it myself. Terry and I have been together for a long time. And one of the things we liked about each other when we first met was that we didn't put a lot of importance on birthdays, anniversaries, Valentine's Day, these kind of romantic holy days of obligation. Um, <laughs> I've, I've written a lot about Valentine's Day because I write sex and relationship advice and I get dragged into it whether I want to or not. And my it is advice, your cross to bear. No, no it doubt. Is. And my advice is, some people find it very unromantic. My standard advice when it comes to Valentine's Day gifts is find a couple of small symbolic things that you can give, like a certain kind of chocolate, a certain kind of flower, same thing every year. Don't escalate. The problem people Don't make escalate. when it comes to romantic gestures is escalation, because eventually you can't outdo yourself anymore, and that will be interpreted as waning interest, waning desire, waning commitment. When you just like run out of Super Bowl blimps to rent and fly over the house would be my <laughs> Valentine's Day. So like small, symbolic, thoughtful, and replicable over the decades. Not some like flash mob proposal every fucking <laughs> February 14th. You'll die. You know what? You know what uh, really God, hold on, you guys. I got I to gotta cancel Dan Savage's flash mob proposal. Hold on. <laughs> No, but you know what's really cool about that, Dan, too, is then it kind of becomes like your thing. You know, it's like our little thing. Oh, we always give each other a pair of pink socks or, you know, whatever, chocolate. Like it's it's our, and you just can like have like little variations of that. And then it becomes fun as opposed to topping. Yes. And don't go out to eat on Valentine's Day. And oh, fuck first. My my most famous, <laughs> one of my most famous pieces of advice is fuck first. Hashtag fuck first. Because I would get, when I first started writing the column, like, I don't do Valentine's Day, but I started getting all these letters from people who were worried that their relationship was collapsing because they went out to dinner on Valentine's Day and then came home and didn't have sex. 
Right. And I'm like, oh, so you went out and had cocoa van and wine and pate yep. and chocolate mousse <laughs> and another <laughs> bottle of wine. And then you came home and didn't fuck. Weird. <laughs> and so I started telling people, fuck first, have a banana and some yogurt at six o'clock, fuck until eight o'clock, go to the restaurant at nine o'clock. They'll be happy to see you because the crush will be over. You'll get enormous portions because they'll be getting rid of everything. And and then you will have already fucked. And you should fuck first on your wedding day. You should fuck first on Valentine's Day. You should fuck first on your birthday. All the holy fuck me days of obligation. <laughs> Don't put it off. Fuck first. I love it. Pound for pound, this is the best advice that's ever been given on this podcast. <laughs> for sure. um, and we haven't even introduced you yet. Um, for those who don't know you, uh, they are probably my mother. So hi, mom. Um, and I am going to read a short introduction. Uh, Dan Savage is best known as the man behind the Savage Love Sex Advice column and its podcast sibling, the Savage Lovecast the most influential sex advice column of the past 30 years. Dan Savage is a Dr. Ruth for the 21st century, a Dr. Kinsey for an age when Kinsey could have actually been gay. He's the editorial director of The Stranger, an alt-weekly in Seattle, where he's married and has a son. He's written books and plays and God knows what else, but a couple weeks ago, when Nancy and I debated a New York Magazine story on polyamory, my, meant, my mind went one place. Dan Savage. Funny enough, he was the one who messaged me. Dan Savage, welcome to Smoke 'em if you got him. Thank you for having me. I'm not the editorial director of The Stranger anymore, and I haven't been for a while. And hi Fuck to your mom. Wikipedia. Hi, Sarah's mom. Yeah, oh. there's a lot of inaccurate information on my Wikipedia page. But Thank you for correcting me. I was just about to ask you if I've made any. And I was wondering about that stranger. What is your the stranger situation? What is your uh relationship with the stranger like these days? I don't have a relationship. I mean, I I still own a little bit of The Stranger and okay. my office is in the, the Stranger. And every once in a while I get consulted on a story. I'll be tapped as a resource. Uh, but um, yeah, there's kind of, you know, with the younger people who moved into The Stranger, a kind of immune response rejection. Like if it came out wow. of my mouth, that was what we shouldn't do because that proved you weren't being ordered around by the man who was like the gay guy <laughs> somehow, but still the man. And so I like started to keep my powder dry and like if they need something and they want to come to me like there's a wonderful writer named Vivian at the stranger covers uh queer stuff and every once in a while she'll give me a call for some background or the deep history of the queer movement or the queer community in Seattle I'm happy to share that with her but otherwise I stay out of it and when did you uh when did you dip out of the stranger what year oh my god I don't remember that's a math question I don't remember Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I smoke a lot of pot um <laughs> It's been a while. I haven't been the editor for this. I was the editor of The Stranger for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I was the editor behind the editor for a long time. I was sort of a guerrilla huh. editor, editing behind yeah. the editor. And yeah, and then I stepped away because I was um, too busy with other things. Well, I we obviously want to get to this polyamory question, but since you brought it up, I'm very curious, what did it feel like for you to become the man, capital T, capital M? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of writing about, God, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote a really influential essay. He's a lefty, progressive activist. And just this essay deconstructing what the kind of politics the internal internecine politics and left and lefty organizations that have really hamstrung a lot of them 
where this this turning inward. I remember this piece. It was in the Intercept, right? It was yeah. about how yeah, yeah. Right. it was about how left lefty organizations eat eat their Ryan own. Gr- kind of Ryan Ryan Grimm, I think Ryan Grimm like might that. have written it. It was like seven thousand yeah. words long. Yep, yeah. yep, I think so. And yeah. one of the things that made you know, I also ran a theater in Seattle in the nineties. Somebody had to be the the had to have the final word. You needed the the, the, the director, and you needed the editor. And sometimes you had to trust that the editor, the director was like, nope, nope, to this, to that, or would give you assignments. But there, this, this shift came where any exercise of institutional power or authority was itself illegitimate. It was self-illegitimizing mm-hmm. because you were exercising authority or power. And just the fact that you had power was an indictment of you and made you suspect and it just like the whole thing flipped on its head. And we went from, you know, the editor was the boss to the editor was having to like comfort people, follow people. And I'm, I'm not very comforting, a, a very comforting presence in that environment. So did people cry in your office? Yes. Um, but they did it at a time where I could look at them blankly and say, I have a five-year-old. <laughs> At home, and oh my I God. don't have the space for five-year-olds at work. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I tried to be empathetic, but it was a struggle. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. When when they when they don't think that I remember when I first first became a journalist, I was in LA. I was writing for um, Buzz Magazine, and I you know I was so green, and I was like, why do we even need editors? <laughs> they looked at me and went wow, you really are young. Um, but I think we, in, when you're saying things got flipped on their head, it's like, well, why should, why do you have authority over me? Why? Right. right. And why shouldn't somebody who was hired two months ago uh, to do data entry for the calendar be able to have a feeling and overrule the associate editor, who is not me, I'm talking about somebody else, who'd been there for 20 years and was a huge, important writer at The Stranger, uh, why shouldn't that brand new hire who has a, a feeling and is now crying and has the tear veto running down her face, why shouldn't she be able the tear to veto? I'm sorry, I have to pause on that. I just have to savor it for a second. The tear veto. I've never heard anybody use that. I don't know if it's your coinage. I'm I, I just made it, it up right now, but I'm describing a thing that happened. It's unbelievable. I, I as, as a person that often will throw down the tear veto myself because I'm a crier, uh, and has been accused of of using that, you know, whatever. Um, that was so good. Sorry, keep going. Anyway, like enough of that. I can't remember what the question is. I smoke too much pot, so. <laughs> um, the question was, uh, well, we were we were asking about you becoming the man, which was this evolution that that so many of us have had. I mean, look, you know, like w- w- all three of us come out of the alternative newspaper space. Nancy was mm-hmm. at LA Weekly. I was at the Austin Chronicle. You're at the Seattle Stranger. Those are pretty much the three best. Uh, three of the best alt weeklies that uh, that were around for a while. Um, you know, we were forged in the fires of nonconformity. And, you know, it is a strange thing to then find yourself on this flip side kind of arguing about, wait a minute, no, 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 no. We, we want people to have conflicting opinions we want arguments we that's no that's how we do it it's like no that's not how we do it anymore because 20 fucking years have passed the last time i offered to like resume writing a little bit for the stranger i had this conversation um with someone who was there at the time 
And they were like, we actually don't want you to write because every time you write something, we have to drop whatever we're doing and refute it and respond. And I was like, you know, you actually kind of don't have to do that. Like that can be, that can be tension that happens outside the building. Somebody at another publication can write something. People in the comments who are our readers can, if they think disagree with me, but there's this sense that if you work someplace and somebody else has an opinion or a thought or writes a piece that you fundamentally disagree with, you are tainted by that association unless you get on that same platform and condemn that other writer, that other person. And how do you, how do you put out a publication with, if, if that's, yeah. So it's no how longer do they a publication. Put out that publication? It's, it's no longer it, my publication to put out. So it's no longer a publication. It's like a house organ of some kind. Like we've got our message and we'll just say it in 14 different ways and that's all. And thank you for coming yeah. to Monday sermon. That's it. This oh is my not in this stuff. And if I was a petty, petty, if I was as petty and vindictive a uh, bitch as people like to <laughs> argue that I am, <laughs> I wrote all this stuff, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago about just thinking about trigger warnings and how anybody who uses one is going to write sensitively enough about a subject that they didn't need to use it. And anybody who's going to write insensitively about yep. that subject isn't going to use it. So they're going to be on the pieces they don't need to be on. They're not going to be on the pieces they yep. do need to be on. And also, I don't think they work. And what is a trigger? And yep. and all I got from people at my paper who <laughs> worked for me were posts going up saying that I didn't care about people who were raped and that I was pro-rape, oh, pro-rape culture. <laughs> And now, like all this research has come out in the last few years saying trigger warnings not only don't work, but they're counterproductive. They do harm. And I just want to like go back and add links to these pieces that were written by my colleagues saying I'm a monster who's pro-rape when most of what I've done talking to straight guys in my column on my podcast for 30 years is like thinking through consent and how to get to it and what it means yep. and what it is and what it yep. isn't and how consent under arrest and straight guys have to overcompensate for women's legitimate fear of male yep. violence and all interactions. And like, I'm doing this, but also because I think trigger warnings are self-evidently transparently bullshit. I don't care. I'm pro-sexual assault. And that <laughs> was said in my own paper no, about me. Yeah. Come sit next to me, Dan. Come sit next to me. That's, yeah, that's it. I just think, you know, there you have about, or people that are inclined to think this way and not want different opinions, there's like eight or 10 cards in the deck, right? And they just flip it out. Like, what what am I going to say about this that I don't like? Oh, it's, he's, he's a rape apologist, or it's a trigger warning, or it's, you know, white supremacy, whatever it is. It's just, it's, there's no, they just want to end the conversation and it's boring. It's boring. One of the issues that I tangled with um, people on my own staff was we had a youth prison in Seattle and it was falling apart and they needed to build a new one. But of course, then you're spending money on incarcerating children and state law requires King County in Seattle to maintain a youth detention facility. And the one we had was dehumanizing and decrepit and depressing. And the message it sent to the families of people who were incarcerated there who would be coming was, fuck you, we don't care about you. And it was awful. And the argument was, we need to spend money on community organizations and restorative justice, and then we won't need a youth prison at all because there won't be any youth in prison. And all I responded with was, okay, in the meantime, for the next hundred years, before all of these social changes pay this dividend right. of no more 15-year-olds shooting people in the face at bus stops, which has happened in Seattle, and no more 16-year-olds raping a student, raping a girl, three or four, like, 
okay, what? What do we do in the meantime? In the meantime, we need, and this was me, like, I think all African-American teenagers should be in jail. And it was me, just that pivot, like you said, Nancy, to like a handful of accusations. I was racist. And the proof was that. And like, how do you argue argue with that? Okay, sure. The proof, proof was that you actually thought it was good money spent by the county and the state to actually build a humane facility for kids that are getting themselves in trouble. This is so humane. And I've and written we, about this. We over-incarcerated kids. We threw kids into prison who shouldn't have been in mm-hmm. prison. We need to incarcerate as few as possible. But then anytime you say like, okay, but what about this kid who just shot that guy in the face? That's you scaremongering and citing an edge case. But I'm sorry, you saying that's an edge case does not make that not a thing that just happened. Right. Like that woman in Vancouver going to get her balls waxed by the immigrant home beauticians and then suing them because they were like, we don't do testicles. Right. And you're not allowed to talk about that case because it's transphobic to even bring it up. It's an edge case. And it's like, well, but it's an edge case that exists. And like, this is where what we all wish were true or was true gets tested by what actually is. And then how do we, how do we deal with this? So I'm hundred percent against incarceration or incarcerating kids for bullshit. And I'm pro decarceration, um, pro prison reform, pro bail reform. But like the, the three kids who raped a woman, okay, give them where, what, what are we supposed to do? And like with the, thing we had was on fire. Anyway, I didn't know we'd be talking about this. When, what I'm realizing (laughs) as I'm talking, as I'm listening to you is, you know, Savage Love is obviously your brand and, and it's, it's, you're not going to let go of that necessarily, but I would kill or die to listen to like a parenting advice column from you or like a work advice column from you. Like, like, all your parenting problems are solved if you just incarcerate all the kids. (laughs) I know. But have you ever thought about that? Uh no. No, I like writing about dildos and making dick jokes. That is really my Fair enough. Forte. It just I just can see this like instead of like, you know, it's like savage your your savage uncle, you know? Ooh. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm gonna put you I, on the spot. I, I need a dick joke right now. Um I need, I, I don't know, like... I, Can you give him something it, else? Dick joke. Dick jokes, like, rise organically out of the material. You just can't, like, slap a dick joke on something or okay. just, like, pull All a right. dick joke out of thin air. Like, <laughs> dicks are living, breathing, feeling things, and dicks are Tinkerbell. You got to believe, and then they work. You got to clap for them, <laughs> and then they they appear and get stronger and live. So I just can't yank a dick I'm gonna joke try, out of I'm going to try it. Um... So, I, want, I want you to keep stroking it a little bit longer, so it'll uh, just keep getting higher. You know, the, you were at the LA Weekly, Austin Chronicle, The Stranger. What really, what, what changed was we were the people who called bullshit on Cant. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then we became the bullshitting canters. That's right. Or the publications became the bullshitting canters. Like that stuff about... You know, if we just give enough money to community-based 501c3s, no kid will ever commit a crime again. I'm sorry, that's bullshit. And yeah. it's can't. And it had to be, we should be able to say that. But you can say about the right, that's bullshit, that's can't. But that then something changed and you couldn't do the same calling of bullshit on lefty shibboleths. And if you did, 
that that like that that old adage that the right seeks converts, the left hunts heretics. The fact that I was yeah. like on the other side of the youth prison debate, or just the like, okay, I'm I completely accept the premise of your answer. And in a hundred years, there won't be any kids committing crimes if we can just have economic justice. I'm there. I'm with you. And in the meantime, what? What do we do with the kid who shot the woman and you know, the man in the face? What do we do? What do we do? And but then you're then you're racist. And then any other opinion you might hold on anything else is suspect. And then anything you say that you're towing the line, people are like, oh, that's him just saying what he knows we want to hear to throw us off his secret closet Republican scent, you know? And I'm not a Republican. I know. I mean, I get it too. I get that accusation too. Um, and it, it, I've stopped fighting back about it, you know, because it's like, well, what I get is you're a conservative. And I kept being like, I'm not, I'm not. And finally I was like, I don't know, maybe I am. You're defining me. So I don't see myself that way, but I don't know what it means anymore. The word is meaningless to me. You know, if conservative is wanting things to be the way they had been and the way they had been is to use, you know, logic, rational discourse, civil discourse, due process. Yeah, I then. Yeah. Um, But I, I, you know, it hurts me in my heart because I grew up in Texas you know, a very conservative part of Texas in a in a, you know, yellow dog Democrat family where I got made fun of for, you know, being a lib. And so a lot of my yeah, having a Dukakis button on your backpack. It was Mondale. Yeah, I'm older Mondale. than that. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but like uh, my self-identity was forged in response to that. And so I understood my but, th- but then I leapfrogged from one liberal echo chamber to another, going from Austin, where I went to college, to uh, the Austin Chronicle, to Salon in uh, New York City. And, you know, and and I started, I did, I did, I don't know if the libs were changing or everything or the culture was changing or my, I was getting older, but like things just started getting a little crazier. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, and maybe this is just how life works and unfolds. Uh but I don't feel like a conservative and I don't feel like yeah. a Republican, but I've been called both those things <laughs> by people who, when they tell me what they're about, I'm like, huh, huh, wow. <laughs> if any of that was at all rooted in any realistic understanding of human behavior or motivation, I might be with you. But. Oh, Dan Savage, I love your bluntness. I really do. Um, you have this beautiful ability to be funny and honest at once, which is rare. Um, I do want to talk about this polyamory story that was the reason that we brought you on. Nancy and I had had a frothy debate about polyamory. Where I was um, invoked. You were invoked. In, in fact, you were you were incorrectly invoked. So let me correct the record. I remembered you writing that New York Times magazine story uh, on monogamish, you know, oh, no, and yeah. then I went back to it and I realized you were just copiously interviewed. Um, but your voice had been so strong in it that I remembered your quotes and thus remembered you as the author. And I think of you as the author of the monogamish moment, which is around that. What is it? 2015, 14? What is this? I don't remember when I coined monogamish, but it was a while ago. 
Yeah. But I've been and writing about open relationships and oh. polyamory for a lot longer than um, I came up with monogamish. Well, exactly. Um, yeah. And now my new uh, neologism, or that's a that's redundant, uh, but my <laughs> the neologism I launched recently is polyamorous, which I actually yeah. think is most most relationships. There's a certain yep. forbearance or tolerance of perhaps what would have been line crossing earlier in the relationship, and I so it's. Uh, yeah, polyamory to be uh, from the same root word as the tolerant, intolerant in Latin, toler, and uh, amory, love. So putting up with your love's shit, polyamory. Which okay. is, I think, another word that we needed. Hillary uh, Clinton, polyamorous. Uh, the guy who's married to Nikki Haley, apparently she had an affair. <laughs> oh, He's yeah, that's right. Polyamorous. It's not just uh, women who are silently suffering and being tolly. Uh, we've seen over the last 25 years as the income gap closed between men and women. So did the infidelity gap that men yeah. used to cheat a lot more in long-term relationships. And now women yeah. are just as likely to cheat yeah. because there's less risk of economic ruination. If a woman gets caught cheating now than there used to be, women have more power and uh, cheating that kind of license granted to yourself is an expression of power. And it's not that women were better at being monogamous or above it, just the consequences for women were much direr, including inviting male intimate partner violence, which women are always having to factor into their yeah. choices. But these days, more women are cheating. More men get the opportunity to be Tolly. More men get that's, to be Hillary Clinton now than ever before. That's fascinating. Isn't it also true that women's infidelity uh, sort of took uh, a level jump with email and texts as well, that they prefer kind of um, communication modes of vetting. reaching into some, yeah. Vetting. I mean, I think a lot of vetting, that is also vetting. about safety. Um, yeah, men are testosterone-soaked dick monsters and they're dangerous. And um, <clears throat> women who want to sleep with men are really screwed and have to be very careful. That's why often you see, I, I talk to a lot of people who are trying to, who are opening their relationships, straight couples, and they want to impose a rule about no feelings. You can't know anybody very well. And that can work for a woman because a man will sleep with anybody, but the women that the husband might want to sleep with, he can't have an arrangement where she can't interrogate him or get to know him or know yeah. his real name or ask him a million questions. And so that arrangement where NSA, quasi-anonymous sex is allowed with other people, that works well for you know the woman if she feels safe jumping into bed with any man, but it's not going to work well for the man um, because most women will not jump like that. Okay. So make a case for me that- Yeah, I had a bone to pick with you. You're why I wanted to come on the show. Tell me. Tell me. What's the bone? Well, you were talking about- Hi, Smoke em If You Got em listeners. This is Sarah Heppala with Nancy Rommelman. Hi. We're inviting you to listen to the rest of this conversation, but you have to subscribe- Go to smokeempodcast.substack.com slash subscribe. We hope to see you on the other side. Bye.